If you got your Bibles, open it up to Job. We're going to continue on in the in the next discourse as uh, as Job continues to defend his integrity before his friends. Remember when we talk about the concept of Job's integrity throughout the book, Job is is purposing that he has a relationship with God and that the suffering that he's going through is not um, God's judgment on his life for sin. And all his friends, their, their concept or their theology is what we call today the theology of retribution. And it sounds so right. It sounds so good, you know, that, that God judges the wicked and the righteous uh, are blessed. Except that that doesn't exist in reality here. On earth. The question in terms of the theology of retribution is time. Now, do the wicked give an account to God for their actions? Absolutely. Is there a judgment day someday? Absolutely. Is it always occur now? No. The wicked do not always get punished now, and the righteous do not always get blessed now. According to the theology of retribution, there is some sin. In Saeed's life, and that is why he is in prison. And if he would repent of his sin, he would be let go from prison back to a fruitful life of ministering. That's Job's friends. We know when we go through the book of Job that God said Job's friends were all wrong. At chapter 42, God said, Job never sinned with his lips. So we look through Job's complaining and we look through the 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 um, expression of the emotion in Job's life and we need to keep in mind, we might say, Job, you're going too far. But God said, at the end, Job never sinned with his lips. Sometimes we 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 come across certain... Uh, books like Job that are so vital for us to learn because they help us understand that God refuses to fit into the boxes that we would like to put him in so that we could always know certain things are right and certain things are wrong based on our ability to judge circumstances in people's lives. Job's three friends showed up and for seven days were blown away by how bad he looked. So when we come to Job and we look through these discourses and we hear the things that are being said, remember, Job is rotting like a corpse in an ash heap, covered with sores, swollen, uh, his, his, his body is so decimated by the disease that he has that no one wants to look at him, talk to him, or come near him. He's lost everything. He lost ten children in uh, one strong wind that blew down his house. Thieves came and stole all of his livestock. Everything that he ever had for that looked like God's blessing on his life has been washed away. And as he sits there rotting, dying slowly in this ash heap, His friends say, there's got to be a sin in your life. Because if there was not, this wouldn't happen to you. This has to be God's judgment. Now, that would sound good to most of us if we never read Job chapter 1 or Job chapter 2. The problem is in Job chapter 1, God said, there is no man on earth as righteous as Job. There is nobody on earth who has a relationship with God. God said this like Job has with me. We have a relationship. It goes way beyond religion. goes way beyond all these other things. We have, Job and I, a relationship. And Satan said, if you take away all the good stuff in his life, he'll leave you. So God put Job to battle against Satan. The whole book of Job is not about suffering. The whole book of Job is not how to overcome suffering. The whole book of Job is about a spiritual battle between Job and the devil. And the devil's trying to get Job to curse God. He's trying to get Job to 
to quit, give up. And God said, Job won't ever quit. And the devil uses everything at his disposal. He breaks and steals and takes all his stuff. He takes away his health. And I don't know if the devil's behind his friends or not. But it might as well be. Because his friends aren't coming alongside weak knees and a broken man and trying to strengthen him. They're coming alongside saying, Job, you got to repent. Job, you got to repent. What's wrong in your life? And Job says several times, and he's going to say it again tonight, if there's sin in my life, tell me what it is and I'll repent. He's, his heart is not to say, I don't want to repent. But the friends are coming to him and saying, you got sin in your life, brother. There's sin in your life. You need to confess it. Job never disputes the fact that he's a sinner. He never says, I've never sinned in my life, or somehow my relationship is above everyone else's. But he says, I don't know what the sin is. He even prays to God. God, tell me what my sin is. But see, if you read Job 1 and 2, you know, there's no sin. It's a spiritual battle. For we do not war with flesh and blood. But with principalities and powers, rulers in the darkness. That there is spiritual enemy and there is a spiritual battlefield. And the Bible tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means it's not things that we can do. Our strength, our power, our might. But they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So the way we fight a spiritual battle... Is how Job fights a spiritual battle. All the way through the book, there are a couple of things Job always does. He always recognizes that every piece of suffering that he is going through has passed through the hands of a God who loves him. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know why. And when we get to the end of chapter 42, you won't know why either. But he knows it comes from God. We work our way through the book of Job, and tonight is no exception. Job says some incredible things in the midst of his suffering. Job gives us some incredible insight in prophetic matters as a result of his suffering and his crying out to God. In chapter 1, when he lost everything, including his ten children, in one accident, one mighty wind, uh, um, tornado, would be a great example. In one mighty wind, he lost it all. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He received the whole, the whole issue from God's hand. He said, this is from God's hand. I don't know why, but it's from God's hand. I, 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 my questions aren't answered, but I trust God. Later on, he says, though he slay me, though God kill me, I will trust him. Those are some amazing things to say, right? In the midst of suffering and heartache. Job teaches us how to do battle in spiritual warfare. He teaches us to always look to the sovereignty and control of God. Recognizing that the things that have entered into my life have come into my life through the hands of a God who loves me. And a God who has the answers if he wants to give them to me. But Job would say, even if he doesn't, I will continue to serve and follow him. I'm going to continue to do what God wants to do. But Job's friends continue to come up and say, Job, what are you talking about? You can't have a relationship with God. If you had a relationship with God, you would not be going through what you're going through. And to be honest, a lot of people think that way. A lot of people think if bad things are happening in your life, you have ticked off God. And if good things are happening in your life, then you're doing good with God. But Scripture tells us over and over again that that's not the case. We've talked about it before, right? Who's the most righteous, perfect human being ever walked the face of the earth? Jesus Christ. Would you say that everything he did was what the Father wanted him to do? Every word he spoke was what the Father wanted him to speak? Every deed he did was a deed that God wanted him to do. Yet what happened to him? He was crucified. 
to assume that being right in God's eyes means or equates to uh, prosperity is a bad doctrine. And there's a lot of that going on, right? God loves you so you won't be sick. God loves you. He, he, do, he doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be rich. But Jesus said, Birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That, that concept, that doctrine's not in the Bible. In the Bible... Like we talked about in Romans chapter 8, right? We looked at the best part of Romans chapter 8 on Sunday. And we talked about we are more than conquerors, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Can tribulation and persecution and famine and pestilence and sword? What do all those things, what are all those things that he talks about in Romans chapter 8? They're all suffering. Part of suffering. So in Romans chapter 8, Through the Apostle Paul, God is saying, no matter what suffering you go through, it never separates you from the fact that I love you. So, does God love Pastor Saeed? Even though he finds himself in the darkest prison on earth, and no no sight in the future of being let out, God loves him, and there's a purpose. And Saeed's battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And God chose him to be his champion there. God chose Job to be his champion here in the scriptures that we're studying tonight. There are times God chooses men and women to go through things that they're not going to be able to understand. But it never intimates that they are separated from the love of God or the purpose of God. And we've got to remember that. So when we go through tonight, 18 and 19 is what we're going to look at tonight. Remember, Job's friends are always wrong. Job is always right. That's what God said. So your argument's not with me, it's with God. And when we look at it, one of the things we'll notice, though Job's friends are wrong, they mix truth in with what they say. You know, the devil's good at that, right? A little bit of truth, and then season it with a lot of lie. And it sounds good, but it doesn't make it good. Look what it says, chapter 18, Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long till you put an end to words? Gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. So basically what he says is, you are so dumb, why don't you go learn something and then we'll talk? That's what he's saying. Sometimes I think we, we uh, when we go through the scripture, we, we make everything so sound so pretty and generic that we forget the language behind which is used. There are words in the Hebrew used in the Old Testament that you wouldn't say in church. But they're in here. They're in here. He's saying, look. How long till you'll stop talking? Job, you keep talking, you talk and talk and talk, and you don't have nothing to say. You're stupid. And if you would learn a little bit, you could talk to us. He says, why are we, the friends, why are we counted like beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Why do you look at us like we're being stupid? Job, you're the stupid one. Now they're, they're, they're calling him names. Now just keep in mind, who, who are we talking to? Job, who's lost all of his children, and is slowly rotting to death in an ash heap. And they're calling him stupid. That's not in any biblical counseling books you're going to find. You're not going to find a biblical counseling book to deal with someone when they're going through suffering that says, you know what you, what you should do is tell them they're stupid. There's not that. The Bible tells us to come alongside and have compassion. The problem is, Job's friends don't have any of that. Because their theology is being messed with. You can't have a relationship with God, Job. You can't have a relationship with God. Because if you do, then what's happening to you could happen to me. And that messes with my theology. So Job is stupid. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock 
be removed from its place. So what he's saying is, you who tear yourself in anger, you are out of control. You've lost self-control in your anger, and you're rambling, and it doesn't make any sense. And he's saying, listen, this, this theology of divine retribution, that God gives you what you deserve, that God, that God brings upon you what you deserve, is part of the cosmos. If we change <clears throat> that theology, if we get rid of this concept that we're talking about, it would be the same as the earth disappearing, or the same as the rocks removed from their place. It's part of the cosmos. It's part of what holds the world together. The theology of you get what you deserve. Though I don't really have a big problem with you get what you deserve. The problem is timing. Yeah. One day you'll stand before God and you'll get what you deserve. But that doesn't mean you get it here. Sometimes the wicked prosper. And sometimes the just are falsely imprisoned. It's timing. But their belief was, if only the wicked suffer, and Job your suffering, then you must be wicked. You are a pretender. You are not really a believer. The things you said you were, you're not really. And so that's why these things are happening to you. The light of the wicked indeed goes out. And the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. Saying, Job, your life is going to equal darkness because you're wicked. That's why your light has gone out. That's why your children have been taken. That's why you find yourself sick and dying. And if you don't repent of your sin, you're going to perish. Your light is going to be put out. That's what Bildad is saying. The steps of the wicked man, the steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. Now, do the wicked, is their own counsel counsel always cast them down? Oh, it does not. We look at the Proverbs, and oftentimes Job is, is considered to be a book of, of wisdom. When you go through the sections of the Bible, it is wisdom literature or proverb. And whenever we talk about Proverbs, we have to understand when we open up Proverbs, we are dealing with uh, a pithy statements of general truth. Now, sometimes that messes with people's noodle. Okay, so the Proverbs are statements of general truth. That means these things that the Proverbs talk about are generally true. They're the path of wisdom. It doesn't mean they're always true. We have to decide if we're okay with that. Because the Proverbs will tell us that the wicked will be the wicked will be judged. The, the question I said is, is timing. They're always judged here. The psalmist would say, I almost lost heart in my relationship with God when I saw the wicked prospering. Because I know the Proverbs say that the wicked won't prosper. The question is not whether or not there is the reality within uh, life of, of the wicked prospering or not, the, the question is a question of timing. Generally, the wicked won't prosper, and the righteous will. The wicked are going to suffer, and, and the righteous won't. So when we, when we look at the Proverbs, we've got to realize, general truth. Give, let me give you one. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a proverb. It's a proverb. Does that make it not true? No, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's generally true. Are there times when a child you've trained up in the ways of the Lord doesn't follow the ways of the Lord? Yes. They, it, there, there are times. 
We have to recognize when we look at poetry in the Bible, we're looking at poetry. We have to interpret the Bible through the genre that's being written. When it's written in proverb, we interpret proverb as proverb. A proverb is different than when Jesus says something. Uh, when, when God gives a commandment, thou shalt not steal. Is there another way to interpret that? No, it means don't steal. When the Bible says things very plainly, it's interpreted very plainly. When we look at wisdom literature, we have to understand we're looking at general truth. Statements that are generally true. The path of wisdom. So when we look at Job and we look at the things he says, we look at their friends, there's always a little bit of wisdom concept in there, right? Isn't the strength of the wicked short? Does their way always last? Is it always cut short? Well, no, it's not. Who had the longest kingdom in the nation of Israel? You guys remember? Who was the most wicked king in the nation of Israel? Manasseh. So now you know who had the longest kingdom. He reigned 65 years longer than any other king, and he was the most wicked of all the kings. Was his strength shortened? It's a general truth. Why wasn't the strength of Manasseh shortened? Because you have to bring that in line with what the whole Bible says. What does the whole Bible say? The whole Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, desiring that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. Are you guys with me? So when the Lord holds back His hand of judgment upon the wicked, it is to give the wicked opportunity to repent. Do you know what happened to Manasseh at the end of his reign? At the end of Manasseh's reign, he gave his life to the Lord. So, that's why I mean, when we look at Proverbs, it's, it's not a way that we can point to someone and say, if you do this, this is how it's always going to work out in your life. We can say, generally, this is a good path to walk. Are, are you guys with me? But if you're not... Feel free to come up and we can argue about it afterwards. But he said, his own counsel casts him down. It says, for he is cast into a net. In verse 8, 9, and 10. Six different terms, all used of different kinds of traps. So let's look at it. He is cast into a net by his own feet. And he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel. And the snare lays hold of him. And a noose is hidden for him on the ground and a trap for him in the road. So he's saying God always traps the wicked. Now listen, the Proverbs tell us that the wicked man will often fall into his own schemes, his own plans. You guys remember when we did the book of Esther? And and Haman was going to kill all the Jews. And he ended up getting hung in his own, in his own, the, the nooses that he was setting out for all the Jewish people. So generally that happens. But are there times when that doesn't happen? And why is that important? Because God's not going to let you put Him in a box. He's not going to let you say that, that these things... That, that He's not going to let you confine Him to an area that says suffering always equals bad and prosperity always equals good. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a man is that he's prosperous. Right? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is prosperity. Right? What happened to Solomon? Solomon, God called Solomon Jedediah. Much beloved. Called him beloved of God. Specially loved of God. And he said, I'm going to give you everything that you didn't ask for. And he gave him riches and wealth and wisdom and all that stuff. But what happened to Solomon? He's the opposite of Manasseh, right? He started so blessed of God, but how does he end? He ends not even walking with the Lord at all, but bringing in all kind of false worship into the nation because his heart has been turned away from God. Because he fell in love with God's good gifts more than he fell in love with God. He loved the gold and the silver and the women and the wine and the song. All those things are good gifts given by God. 
But he didn't love God. He loved the gifts of God. We can't always do what Job's friends do and place this rule onto people and say that this is how we know someone is doing good or someone is doing bad. So the question from verse 11 on is, do all wicked men suffer? It says, terror frightens him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. I want you to picture them looking at Job. His skin literally is rotting off of his bones. If if God doesn't show up in a few verses, Job would die in the ash pit. He is currently dying. And they're saying, the wicked man, this, what's happening to you, Job, is what happens to the wicked. They Their skin rots off. They get patches of their skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. So, He's, his, his body literally is being devoured by this disease. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent. He loses his security. And they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are not his. Yeah, all Job's kids are gone. So they keep going back to that. He used to have a house full of kids. And they were adult children, we're going to see in a minute. He lost all his kids, but he didn't lose all his grandkids. But they say, strangers dwell in your tent. They're not, they're not your kids. There are other people that are, that are in that place now. And then he says, brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. So if I put that into English terms, it would be like them telling him... Uh, you need to go to hell. Brimstone is a word, Hebrew word, speaking of hellfire. The fires of hell are your dwelling. You are in hell. You, you are outside of God's plan in your life. There's no way, Job, that you can be God's elect. There's no way, Job, that you could be God's champion. There's no way you have a relationship with God. It says, <clears throat> He will... They will forget him. The loss of remembrance is a sign of the wicked. Look, his roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. Is that true? Let me ask you a question. Any of you guys remember a guy named Hitler? What about... we think of any other horrible human beings that died a long time ago? What about Stalin? You remember Stalin? He killed six million of his own people. The memory of the wicked disappear? We can't remember the wicked anymore? The idea of Job's friends is only the, right, the memory of the righteous endure. The memory of the wicked is washed away. It's, it's just not true. The world we live in is not maybe the world we would like it to be. Job's friends saying, hey, he is driven from light into the darkness and chased out of the world. The wicked have no children. He has neither son nor, pros, uh, no po- nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. <clears throat> Those in the west are astonished at his day. Those in the east are frightened. Listen to his final conclusion. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. So let there be no confusion in your mind that What Job's friends are telling him. Job is saying, I have a relationship with God. And you can't tell I have a relationship with God based on the blessings in my life. Or the lack of suffering. You can tell I have a relationship with God, I think, on the basis of the faith that is exhibited in the suffering. And that's what we see Job doing over and over again. So build that hammers Job. You can't have a relationship with God, Job. you got to be wicked. Because you're in the place of the wicked. All these things are happening to you. So Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? I thought you guys were my friends. Why, why are we in a shouting match, man? I'm, you don't got to be here. 
You don't have to be, you don't have to be sharing. He says, these ten times you have reproached me. That's just a hyperbole. He's saying, it's like saying, man, you just keep busting my chops over and over again. Ten times you're, 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 uh, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. You're charging me with things I haven't done. Listen, if I, uh, and if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If I have sinned, if I am wrong, then I will have to live with it. But it doesn't make any sense as to why you are without compassion toward me. You ever shouted anyone into the kingdom of God? What if we were to go and and uh, picket at uh, Planned Parenthood and someone was walking in for an abortion and you yelled at them that they're a baby killer? What do you think? Going to change your heart? Or we stand on the other side of a group of Hamas. And we shout at them and scream at them that they're, that they're evil. Are they any more evil than me? Are they any more broken? And how is it that Jesus approached the wicked? The only people Jesus had no patience for were the religious people. The ones who believed that their righteousness was acts of their own self. Self-righteous. Did Jesus confront sin? Every time he confronted sin. Did he tell the woman at the well, you know, it's okay that you've had five marriages and you're living with a guy now. Did he say it was okay? Nope, he just told her, hey, I know what's wrong with you. I know where you're broken. You said right. Yeah, you're not married. You're living with a guy right now. You're outside of of God's plan or purpose for your life. But it stopped him from, with compassion, sharing with her? No. Job's friend are yelling at him. They're upset. They're emotional. We should expect Job to be. His ten children are all dead, and he is slowly rotting in a pile of ashes. No, he's unclean. No one can touch him. No one can look at him. You know, everyone's withdrawing from him. Would understand where he would be emotional, right? What does the Bible say about those who are suffering? Mourn with him who mourns. And rejoice with him who rejoices. The compassion was out of Job's friends. And the truth was not in him. So they're doing more damage then they are doing uh, good. Look what it says in verse 5. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with His net. What's he saying? He's saying, look, you guys are exalting yourselves. There's two ways to exalt yourself. But the most common way is to push somebody else down to get yourself up. Right? You could always exalt yourself by climbing the ladder yourself. But more often than not, we pull someone down to exalt ourselves. So, so Job says, while you guys are exalting yourself, you're pulling me down and exalting yourself. <clears throat> Understand that God has done this to me. Was Job lying? Was Job wrong? Was that... Mess with your theology? The Bible says in chapter 42, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Means Job didn't get it wrong. God has done this to me. He has placed this net on me. He took my kids and he allowed all that stuff to be stolen. And he, he's the one who, who let Satan go, right? God's still sovereign. He's sovereign whether we understand what's going on or whether we don't. He is still sovereign. He says, I, and if I 
cry out concerning wrong. I'm not heard. Job said earlier, I used to pray and call out to God and God would talk to me. But since all this has happened, God's silent. I don't know what's going on. But this is the same man who said, though he slay me, I will trust him. This is the same man who told his wife, shall we not accept evil from the hands of God if we accept good from the hands of God? This is the same man who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the same man who said, yea, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job was in tune with his relationship with God. He was in tune with what was going on. He didn't understand his suffering. But he knew he had a relationship with God. I used to talk to God. If I cry aloud, there's no justice. God doesn't seem to hear me. God doesn't move. God's not taking it all away. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard those words before? They were first... Spoken by David. Later spoken by Jesus from the cross. Psalm 22. Spoken here by Job. I don't understand where God is right now. He doesn't say I don't trust Him. He just doesn't know why God's not moving. Job is in the middle of a spiritual battle. He's in the middle of a spiritual wrestling match with the devil. The devil thinks he's going to beat him. And God says, you can't take Job down, man. Job is tight with me. Job is tight. He's my champion. And Job will not ever let go of God. No matter how bad it gets, he will not ever let go of God. He says, he, speaking of God in verse 8, he has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He stopped me. I, I don't know. I, can't, I got nowhere to go. I can't go right or left or forward. I'm, my body is falling apart. I'm diseased. Uh, I, can't, I can't touch anyone. I can't come out of the ash heap. I have to be segregated from the people lest my disease spread. So I'm stuck in this place. I can't go anywhere. The Lord has fenced me in. Is that true? It is. God had fenced him in. He has set darkness in my path. What's he mean by that? Not that God has has put evil in his path. He says, just put darkness. I don't know what's going on. You ever been in the dark? In the dark as to whether I should go right, or I should go left, or I should go straight, or I should go back. I don't know what to do. That's what Job's saying. Many times I've called out to God and he's told me, but now I'm talking to God and he's not telling me anything. It's okay. Job experienced that same thing. There's darkness where there used to be light and I knew where to go. Now there's darkness. He has stripped me of my glory. Once upon a time, people would come to Job for his wisdom. And they would look to Job and say, man, there is a godly man. And now they look at Job and they say, man, there is a guy cursed of God. God hates that guy. But God never promised us that in our walk with him he would glorify us did he sometimes we get glory right didn't solomon get glory didn't david get glory aren't there heroes of the bible who were who got glory because of how god used them but god never promises to give us glory sometimes the glory that we have to the people around the world is a hindrance to us being able to move forward And sometimes, for God's own purpose, He strips our glory. And people look at us and and hate us without cause. Does that sound like somebody you know? Isaiah chapter 54, speaking of the Messiah, has that phrase in it. They hated me without cause. The stripping of His glory. And has taken my crown from my head. Now, one of the tricky things about Job is the Hebrew is 
notoriously hard. It's very, 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 very ancient. The Hebrew for Job. Job's a very, very, very old book. So understanding the Hebrew, it's the concept that he might be talking about in taking my crown from my head may be a reference to his wife. The Bible says that, that the wife is the crown of the husband and now he, he can't be around his wife. He's separated, segregated in the ash heap and his wife, he can't receive comfort from her. He may be referring to that. He may be referring to the fact that he's lost everything and he just doesn't have anything. But, but I tend to think he's, he's thinking about his wife. He, he has, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. Job is at the end of himself. End of himself. I don't know. I don't know what to do. God has broken me down. Is that a bad place to be? Do you know that the psalmist declared that the Lord is near unto the brokenhearted? The people who are broken and destroyed and life is obliterated. That God is near to those? I think while Job was in the depths of his despair, God was nowhere near as far from him as he felt God was from him. Job goes on to say, My hope he he has uprooted like a tree. He's not talking about his hope in God, because over and over and over again, Job has said he's hoping in God, that his faith is in God. What hope is he talking about? Every man's hope is his family, it's his children, it's his posterity, it's the ones who are going to go forth from him. All the hope of what his life was going to look like, what was going to happen, what his children were going to become, and what his grandchildren were going to become, all those things have been taken away. All the things I thought my life was going to be. The Lord ever took a sharp right turn in your life? I think I'm going left, but bam, all of a sudden, whoa, what just happened? What's going on? He's uprooted my hope, the plans that Job had in his life. <coughs> he has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. Job says, the things God's doing to me is what I used to think He only did to His enemies. The Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Job says, I, I feel like I'm, I'm an enemy of God. That, that God is... His, his, just, his wrath and His judgment has come upon me. His troops come together and they build up their road against me and they encamp all around my tent. Well, who's He talking about? It's the friends that are around Him. <laughs> the Lord has sent a troop of, of you guys to come and man, you're such a joy to me. Then He says in verse 13, He has removed my brothers far from me and my acquaintances are completely estranged. From me, these guys who are around Job were really his friends. I don't mean just they, they acquaintances. These were his friends. So he says, "I have an army, a troop of people I don't really understand. I don't know you guys, my friends that look like you. I don't know where they are. They're estranged from me." But he also is saying that it's God who's done that. That God has has allowed this for you, my friends, to be today my enemies around me. I see the hand of God in all of this. It's not as though God forgot about me and all these bad things happened. Job says, I see the hand of God in it all. I don't understand it. But I know who it comes from. He says, my relatives have failed. (coughs) My close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. Even his servants, who at one time would have come immediately when he called, now despise him. Look what he says. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. 
he won't come. The people who were with me and for me, I've lost them all. So it's not just a losing of his stuff and a losing of his family. And the suffering is not just his illnesses and his sickness. He's lost everything, every friend, every relationship. He is on an island standing in a ring doing battle toe-to-toe with Satan. And he doesn't understand what's going on, but he knows that he's there because God wants him there. And that is what becomes the anchor for Job. I am here because God wants me here. I have cancer because God wants me to have cancer. I, I am, have lost my job or my purpose because this is the path that the Lord has led me to. That was his anchor, his strength, the only thing he could hold on to. And he wouldn't let go of that, and God knew he wouldn't let go of it. That's why God chose Job. To defeat Satan. And he does. He beats him. How did Peter put it? Submit to God. Resist the devil. And what happens? And he will flee. So Job is submitted to God. He says all these things are from God. I don't understand. I don't know why. But I submit to God. And I'm not going to curse him. He resists the devil. And the devil's going to flee with his tail between his legs. Job is going to beat him because he trusts God more. He says, my breath is offensive to my wife. It doesn't mean he has bad breath. It means, <coughs> it means that every word he speaks, everything he does, the person, the, the breath is like a, a, a word for a soul of a person. That I am offensive to my wife hates me. Remember the last words that she spoke in the book of Job? Curse God and die. That's not, by the way, the words of love. Oh, honey, it's going to be okay. No, it's like, (coughs) she's looking at him and saying, you did something and God took all my kids away. Why don't you just curse God and die? He says, I'm despised. My breath is offensive. Listen to this. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. His children are dead. So what children is he talking about? The Hebrew word for children can can mean little child, grandchild. All of those are the same word. I think he's talking about his kids' kids that didn't die in the in the strong wind who, that killed all his children, who were adult children. These are his grandkids. What, what greater joy is there in a grandparent than to throw out his arms and have his grandchild jump in his arms and, and, and you know, love on him? And he says, I'm repulsive to my grandkids. I can see him over there at the house. But they hate me too. My wife hates me. My kids, my own children are dead. But that's why he can call these the children of his own body. The grandkids are related to him. His ten children are gone. But the grandkids, there are grandchildren still there. He says, even the young children despise me. They hate me. (coughs) I arise and they speak against me. That... Children are, are, are hateful toward him. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Oh, you guys have heard that phrase before, huh? Well, I got out of that by the skin of my teeth. It was amazing how many commentators were like, well, I'm not really sure what he means by this. I'm like, man, I don't have a problem understanding that at all. I'm barely hanging on here. <laughs> I'm getting out of here by the skin of my teeth. We don't have skin in our teeth. So it's a really small thing keeping us out, right, of the, of the fire, out of death. He's barely hanging on. And then he looks to his friends and he says, have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Uh, this is God. 
moving in my life. Just have pity. Have compassion. Have mercy. Why do you persecute me like God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Job says, look at me. What more do you want? What more do I need to suffer before you feel like my suffering is complete? I'm barely alive. (coughs) Barely hanging in there. I've lost everything. Nobody loves me. And you guys are yelling at me. That there's a secret sin in my life. And I'm saying there's not. And we know Job's right. There's nothing going on. So he asks for his friends to have mercy and compassion on his life. And then he says, oh, that my words were written. Well, guess what, Job? They are. (laughs) He says, oh, that they would be inscribed in a book. Oh, guess what? They are. That they were engraved on a rock or with an iron pen in lead forever. They, all three are methods by which they would write in those days. They've actually found sheets of lead that are inscribed, uh, which was a way that they would write books, or the, the scrolls, the papyri that he's talking about. <clears throat> all these are ways that it would be written. He's saying, look, the world needs to understand what's going on in my life. What the world does. It was important enough that God kept it. So that we could look and say, just because something bad happens in somebody's life doesn't mean God hates them. Doesn't mean it's God's judgment. Sometimes God is doing a work like he did in Job. Then he says the greatest five verses in the whole book. So here's Job. Dead. Dying, could be dead at any moment, <coughs> barely hanging on, the loss of everything. And he again throws out an incredible uh, voice of faith. For I know my Redeemer lives. The one who's going to make all this right. I know he lives. Genesis 3.15 is what's called the Proto-Evangelicum. At the time of Job, the Bible that has been written probably takes us down to around chapter 11, 12 maybe in the book of Genesis. So we don't have a lot of revelation of God, but we have the Proto-Evangelicum. The Proto-Evangelicum is the first mention of the Messiah. The Proto-Evangelicum is when God said to Eve, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Job says, in the midst of his suffering, when he's lost it all, I know my Redeemer lives. There's someone coming that can make this all right. There's someone who knows how to put all the pieces together. He says, I know, not I hope, not I think, now maybe there might be. He knows. Is that the way your faith is? Your Lord and Savior, I know my Redeemer lives, and I know He shall stand at last on the earth. He says, I know, not only do I know the Redeemer lives, but I know God's going to stand on earth. He's going to come here. He's going to fix this twisted world. He's going to put all the pieces back together again. He says, I know He's coming. Do you know? Your Redeemer is coming? The Bible said, when you see these things that are happening in our day happening, look up. Your redemption draws near. Mama Espinosa, which is like Sister Teresa... I don't, Mama Espinosa is not alive anymore, but <clears throat> when last time I saw her, she was 95. It was probably 15 years ago, maybe more. 
Mama Espinosa was the sister Teresa of, of Mexico. And down in Mexico, she would help the homeless and she would feed the hungry and she would do all these things. 95 years old. Every day she would get up singing. And she got together. We had the youth group there. And she said, bring them in. I, I got something to tell them. And so all the youth group sit around. And Mama Espinosa's talking. To, the only time I've ever seen that many kids be quiet is when a 95-year-old woman is getting ready to talk to them. So she says, my little children, listen, listen. This world is crazy, but your Redeemer is coming. I know, because I can see his toes. He's just hanging over the edge. Job said, my Redeemer lives, and I know he's coming. He's coming. And after my skin is destroyed, literally, after worms eat my flesh... He says, I know. So he's saying, after I die, I know that in my flesh, I will see God. So he's saying, not only do I know my Redeemer lives and He's coming, but I know there's going to be a resurrection. I know I'm going to die. I know I'll be raised again. And I know I'm going to see God. He says, that I shall, in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I will see for myself. He says, I'm not going to see Him at a distance or behind a crowd. I'm going to look right in His face, nose to nose. I will see God, and my eyes will behold, and not another. You know the reason why there needs to be a resurrection? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because your eyes aren't capable of seeing God. That's why no man has seen God. It's the Father, the, the Son who reveals God, the Father, to us. But when, according to 1 Corinthians 15, corruption has put on incorruption. When now you see through a glass dimly, but then... Face to face, God's going to give you a new body, new eyes that enable you to enjoy everything that God is for eternity. A new body to be able to enjoy all that God has for you for eternity. It's not less than here. It's greater. My eyes will see Him, mine, and not another. And then look how He ends it. How my heart yearns within me. What's he saying? That's going to be a glorious day. I'm sitting here in a heap and I'm dying and I've lost everything, but you know what I'm hanging on to? I know my Redeemer lives and I know He's coming and I will die, but I will be raised again and I'll have new eyes with which I can look upon God with and I can't wait for that day. So, The damning thing about all views looking for Christ that don't say He can come tomorrow is that it steals from you the hope Job has. If you say, I believe that... Jesus cannot come for me until the middle of the tribulation period, then He can't come tomorrow. If you say that Jesus can't come for me until the end of the tribulation period, He can't come tomorrow. If you say Jesus can't come to me until right before the wrath of God is poured out, He can't come tomorrow. There's only one way Jesus can come at any time. It's called the imminent return of Christ. Paul taught it. Paul said, I am looking for my Savior now. So I reserve the right to change my eschatology as I need to. The primary purpose of my eschatology is to help me to look for Jesus every single day. Every single day. So trust me. 
if I'm looking for Jesus every single day, and I find myself in the middle of the tribulation period, I'll be a mid-tribber. And if I'm looking for Jesus every single day, and I find myself at the end of the tribulation, I'll be a post-tribber. But the only way for me to look for Jesus every single day is to be someone who believes in the imminent return. There is not one prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus can come again. He said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He didn't say, All he said is, I got to get it ready. When it's ready, I'll get you. Right? So he can come get me anytime he wants. And eschatology can go out the window. Eschatology is the idea of end things, the study of end times. You know, our study of end times is not perfect. I don't know if you knew this. Our study of end times that have already happened, which would be history, that's pretty good. The prophecies that have already been fulfilled that are historic, <coughs> we have no problem recognizing those. The prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet, there's a lot of opinions about those. Do you guys know that? I hope you're okay with that. It's all right. Nothing wrong with that. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and He's coming for me. Job was a long time ago. Job was before Jesus came in the first place. But Job was looking for his Redeemer. And that was his hope. I'm not looking for Jesus so I escape suffering. Did Job escape suffering? Did Job not go through anything? Was Job's life was just hunky-dory and he just said, God's going to save me from suffering, so, so I'm just waiting on the rapture? Is that what Job said? No, he suffered as much or more than most people. But it didn't stop him from looking for the deliverer, did it? It didn't stop him from looking for his Redeemer, did it? You see, Titus tells us that's our hope. Our hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was Job's way back in Genesis, the time of Genesis. That was a long time ago. That was Paul's hope when he wrote the books of the Bible that he wrote, 13 epistles. It's my hope. If the world keeps going on for a hundred years, it'll be their hope. Looking for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing he said, If you should say, how shall we persecute him? Since the root of the matter is found in me, and you should be afraid of the sword yourself. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. What's he saying? Be careful how you prosecute me, guys, because I'm telling you, I'm a kid of the king. And God don't like it when you beat up his kids. He'll let it go on. And he'll let it happen. Read the book of Revelation. Martyrs are under the throne of God saying, How Lord! How long, Lord, until you'll judge the people who have killed us? And God says, a little longer. When your number is complete. Payday, someday. Job says, I'm one of God's kids. And I'm afraid about what you're saying to me. Because I know I got a relationship with him, and I know he's coming, and I know I know God's gonna make all this right, and I don't understand the whys or the wherefores, but I'm telling you, you guys need to be careful. Lest you find yourself fighting against God. You remember that fella Gamaliel or Gamaliel, however you want to say his name? <clears throat> he said when they were trying to snuff out the church, he told the Pharisees and the scribes, you guys better be careful. You might find yourself fighting against God. This might be God working. Job says the same thing to those guys who are hammering on him. 
hey, this is God working, guys. I'm a child of the king. You know what I'll tell you? For every guy who's ever beat Saeed, you better get saved. Because God don't take kindly to beating his children. And you may get away with it now. But payday, someday. If you're chopping off the heads of God's people, you better get saved. Because God don't take kindly to people killing His kids. He will allow it to happen. He's long-suffering, desiring that no one perish. But payday, someday. You will stand before God. And there will be a reckoning. Guaranteed. You want to read what the reckoning's like? Revelation 6 through 19. Upon the head of the earth dwellers, those whose hope and prayer is in the earth. And it isn't pretty. But for now, it's impossible for us to look at someone's life and say, bad things are happening to you because you're a bad person. (coughs) We could say that about everybody. We're all bad people. We're all sinners. Right? We can't tell what is the hand of God and what isn't. And I think we should pay attention to Job's warning. Be careful. Lest what you're doing is against one of God's kids. We got to be careful, right? That's why the scripture in the New Testament tells us, when you're looking for the speck in your brother's eye, what do you do? Take the beam out of yours. What does that mean? Before I go out here and fix you guys, I need to look in here and fix me. The Bible doesn't say, don't fix your brother. Then it says, after you've removed the beam, now you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You get what he's saying? Always look internal before we look out. Always look in. Job's friends would have been in a lot better place, right? Hey, in a couple of chapters, God's going to show up and things get crazy when God shows up. (coughs) I'm looking forward to that, but we're not there yet. But we'll be.